This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to Pacific Review from ABC Radio Australia. I'm Evan Wasuka. Coming up, votes have been cast and counting is underway, but who will be Fiji's next Prime Minister? A new report highlights links between international criminal gangs and the Chinese Community Party in Palau. And Kava is new to Solomon Islands, but exporters are eyeing a new market in Australia. But we start in Fiji, where citizens went to the polls this week to elect their next government. It's a race between incumbent Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama and the challenger, former Prime Minister Siti Rambuka. ABC reporter Marion Farr was in Suva on election day and filed this report. After almost six months of political campaigning, Fijians like Davina Deepika have finally had their say. I've been proud of myself. Actually, maybe my vote will make a count. She emerged from the ballot box with a sticker congratulating her on voting and one key wish. We just need a stable government who can look after the people from top to bottom. We need good governance. At least that's what I believe. People's Alliance leader Sidibeni Rambuka is hoping the results will go his way. So I'm hoping for a uh, flood of votes in our favour. The former Prime Minister is famed for leading two military coups in 1987, which caused many Indo-Fijians to leave the country. He's been campaigning to win back their confidence, saying there'll be no racial bias if he's elected. They should be pretty certain that I mean what I said then and what I say now that they are safe. The message hit home with 34-year-old Davina Deepika, who is Indo-Fijian. Even if Rambuka wins, I have no issues. I know whatever he has done in 87, long gone, long forgotten, we need to move past that. That's what I can say to everyone else as well. But to win, Mr Rambuka will have to topple incumbent Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama. The Fiji First leader seized power in a military coup in 2006 and has won two democratic elections since. With his wife and granddaughter by his side as he cast his vote, Mr Bainimarama declared he was confident but wouldn't be drawn on his main opponent. Thank you. I don't have any comments on that. Thank you. I don't waste my time. Suva resident Victor Fatiaki voted in the same polling station as the incumbent PM. Uh, this is a very crucial election for the country of Fiji, and I believe everybody trying their best to come and uh, vote. For some, that meant a lot of travel. Fijian seasonal worker Lite Sivu flew from far north Queensland to her home in Suva to cast her vote, with Fiji's rising cost of living top of her mind. Our family back home have been complaining about the high food prices. Everything has been skyrocketing and we we really feel sorry for them because there's no money, no work. But not everyone felt compelled to participate, with roughly 60% of registered citizens turning up to vote. How that will affect the final result is unclear. ABC reporter Marion Farr. And for the latest on Fiji's election, I spoke to ABC reporter Lithe Movono, who's part of the team in Suva. And I started by asking her about when the final results would be announced. As we understand it, the final tally, the declaration of results should happen uh, on Sunday, but there's been a lot of progress so far. We now have an updated 
schedule from the Fiji Elections Office as of this morning, telling us exactly when they will push data into the mobile application and when we can expect the results to come through, uh, which is going to be very useful in terms of uh, public scrutiny and people's ability to see what's happening. So far, it seems to be progressing uh, very well, and we should be um, clear on, on Sunday as to who the next Fijian government will be. Now, earlier in the week, the opposition parties were calling for a recount. Are they still maintaining that position? Yes, they are. And in fact, they've called another uh, press conference for later this afternoon, during which they intend to make that more clear. We must say that we have not seen the letters that uh, they were going to be writing uh, to the appropriate authorities, namely uh, the Electoral Commission, the Supervisor of Election, as well as um, the military and and the president of Fiji. But as far as we know, they're maintaining the position that they would like a full uh, recount of the ballots. And of course, they are asking for military scrutiny or military supervision of that recount. And so at the moment, as far as we know, that's um, still their position. Take us through the background to this. Why are they calling for a recount? Uh, if you can just sum that up. So polls closed at 6 p.m. on Wednesday evening and counts began immediately after that and things were progressing smoothly as to the plans that had been laid out by the Fiji Elections Office. So updates were beginning to come through on the Fijian Elections Office Office app, rather. And so what we were seeing were the provisional results. So the provisional results are uh, call-ins. There's telephone results from the different centers around the country coming into the National um, Results Center, and then it goes up in provisional. So they're not the final tally. They are an indication of where things are. And in the early stages of that, the, the, the opposition parties, namely the People's Alliance Party, as well as, of course, the National Federation Party, were doing quite well in the very early early hours. And then later on in the evening, they began to do remarkably well, uh, jumping well ahead of all of the other parties. Uh, and then just before midnight, uh, we started to get notified, we being the accredited media, uh, were uh, cautioned by the Fijian Elections Office not to screenshot and share the data that was coming through on the app, and not long after that, uh, an announcement that there was something wrong with the app and an explanation that the app had been taken down because the main machine uh, which housed the results management software where raw data is going in was um, incorrectly transferring that information onto the app. Uh, That break lasted a good um, three to four hours, and then when the app came back, uh, it was a complete 180 uh, turn, uh, with the lead now being in favor of the of the ruling First Party. So that, of course, caused a lot of um, uh, instability in terms of um, the opposition parties and um, their their own tracking of the count. Um, it, it continued down that way. As right now, Evan, we're seeing fluctuations. The People's Alliance lead sometimes, and then the ruling the first party uh, uh, lead sometimes. But the opposition parties, in a joint press conference yesterday, um, listed a whole lot of other what they uh, alleged to be um, difficult. Uh, uh, or rather inconsistencies in, in the way that the, that the count is happening and in the way that the electoral process has been conducted. Lide, what's the elections office saying uh, in response to these claims and these um, allegations from the opposition parties? 
the supervisor of elections, Mohammed Tanim, um, held a press conference uh, a couple of hours after the joint opposition parties won and um, addressed each item that the opposition uh, candidates uh, were alleging had taken place. And uh, he, he tried to do a very thorough uh, process of that, explaining every part of what had happened uh, from when counts began. Uh, but the main response from Mohammed Tanim is, is asking for the legal basis for a recount and asking for a better explanation. Uh, and this is something that we also asked of the, of the joint uh, opposition parties, um, you know, their written um, complaint and detailing where the problems were and where the anomalies were. Uh, we, we still haven't been able to see that letter as well, and, and I suspect um, neither has uh, Mohammed Benin. That's ABC reporter Lide Mavona in Suva talking to me there. An investigation by the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project has identified Palau as what it calls a key hotspot in the growing rivalry between China and the West. The project's journalists have found evidence of organized criminals with links to the Chinese Community Party trying to find a way in. Aubrey Belford is the lead editor for the OCCRP in the Pacific. There's been for quite some years an effort in Palau by business people tied to China, many tied with Chinese Communist Party structures and some also tied to organized crime, basically to build up illicit businesses in the country or sometimes not illicit businesses, but businesses that are perhaps a little bit controversial. And they've done so while building links to members of the country's elite, some quite powerful and prominent people. This is actually a um, strategy employed by China around the world, and this is something that's happened in Australia as well. It's known as United Front, where the Communist Party basically reaches out to all elements of society and and tries to be ever-present with what Chinese uh, citizens do um, in China, but also abroad. So we've seen this in in scandals in Australia as well. Palau is very interesting because it recognises Taiwan, so China doesn't have an embassy there. So their instruments of influence have to come from private individuals. Did your investigation find that these attempts to build influence there in Palau were successful? Well, it's been a bit of a mixed bag, to be honest. Palau still remains a very uh, firmly pro-Western and um, pro-Taiwan government. The the current administration has made a lot of noises about being pro-Western. And a lot of these business plans for the country have been blocked. So a lot of the illegal online gambling has been shut down. There were also some very big plans, most notably a plan several years ago by a rather infamous triad figure known as Wan Kwok Khoi, or Broken Tooth, who was sanctioned by the US in 2020. He came out to Palau and had big plans to set up a physical casino on one of the islands, Angar. Uh, it would have been a casino and resort, all basically triad-themed, if you can believe it. And uh, this plan didn't end up going ahead under a lot of international pressure, but also domestic pressure. So, you know, there have been a lot of people in the Palau society that have welcomed them. We've seen that Broken Tooth and other figures, you know, managed to meet with two former presidents, one of them who was serving as president at the time. And we also saw that Broken Tooth set up an association in the country, a branch of his secret society, known as the Hongmen, with the assistance of some quite prominent Palauans. So they might not have reached their final goals, but there was definitely, uh, you know, (laughs) a lot of back and forth going on. Aubrey Belford, the lead editor for the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project in the Pacific, talking there to Priyanka Srinivasan. The cyber attack that brought government services in Vanuatu to their knees 
has alerted other countries in the Pacific to take a closer look at their own online security and where vulnerabilities might lie. As Dubravka Volader reports, the attack on government departments in Port Vila was first spotted in early November. And one month on, the situation is still not entirely back to normal. Vanuatu's chief information officer, Gerard Metzan, has said they recovered 70% of their network. But he has warned the risk of further attacks remains. On remote Santo Island, obstetrician at the Northern Provincial Hospital, Dr. Thomas Sala, says communities such as his are still affected. With regards to hospital services, it really affects our, our patient uh, filing system as well. Eh? Patients who, who come into hospital, it's difficult to locate the, the hospital folder because the system is down and we cannot uh, get it there to find no, who's who and, and, the, and the numbering system. He says it's also difficult to transfer patients who need extra care from Santo to the capital, Port Vila, without the system working. We are sort of lucky that we didn't need to, to reshare that many. Eh? The ABC has contacted Vanuatu's Prime Minister Ishmael Kalsakau and the Chief Information Officer Gerard Metzan for comment, but has not received a reply. The country's foreign minister, Jonathan Nappert, would not speculate on who is behind the cyber attack. I've been told that, you know, we would not say anything. Uh, the matter rests entirely on our technicians. This week, an Australian political bipartisan delegation is visiting Vanuatu, where IT experts have been supporting local staff to deal with the aftermath of the attack. Speaking in Vanuatu... Pacific Affairs Minister Pat Conroy says the visit sends a strong message. The purpose of the bipartisan trip to the Pacific is to demonstrate to leaders and communities in the Pacific that no matter who is the government in Australia, that they will always have a friend. An Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trades spokesperson says cyber threats are an increasing challenge and it's supporting Vanuatu in response to the incident. Vanuatu is not the only country recently targeted by hackers. In Samoa, local media reports say police stopped hackers from attacking a government department and a company. The Samoan police commissioner could not be reached for comment. And in Papua New Guinea, the finance department was targeted late last year. The director of the company Cybersecurity PNG Limited, Solomon Wesley Sua, says many departments in his country are working with older computers and programs, making them more vulnerable. When you look at it, most of this uh, infrastructure there is aging, so it needs a replacement and one of the adults or one of the... Uh, hardship that government departments are facing is funding. When you have one rotten apple in a bag, then, you know, it affects. That's the kind of situation that we're that They're investing in a lot of money and so many things, but one or two equipment in there are still old. He says many officials also need better cyber awareness training to ward off future attacks. And in Solomon Islands in May, the Prime Minister's Press Secretariat Facebook page experienced a brief blackout due to what it called intentional tampering. It said at the time it referred matters onwards for criminal investigation. The Director for Research at the Oceania Cybersecurity Center, Professor Carsten Rudolph, says it's important for Pacific countries to prepare for any possible attacks. One first step is always to establish 
mechanisms on how to deal with these incidents and then also to build up infrastructures that are more resilient against attacks. He says one step is often missing when setting up new services. Everybody should go through a really careful risk analysis and really go through worst case scenarios. What would happen if somebody would take control of that infrastructure, of that computer, of that server, of that service? Is there a way to quickly get it up running? Is there a way of mitigating it? Is there a risk of somebody maybe asking for ransom? Back in Santo in Vanuatu, Dr. Sala is hopeful the services in his hospital will be up and running again soon. We've been promised that you know, uh, everything should be back to normal before the end of this month. It's yet to be seen if the full system will be fixed by then. Dubravka Volodir reporting. Papua New Guineans living on the Australian border say a treaty with nearby islands has become so restrictive they may as well abandon it. The Torres Strait Treaty has been in place since 1985. It allows visa-free travel between the communities on either side of the border. But villages on the Papua New Guinean side say new conditions are unfair and not in the spirit of the agreement. Marion Farr with this report. For thousands of years, Kebe Saleh's ancestors have travelled to the Torres Strait to visit friends, trade goods and participate in traditional ceremonies. It's something he's been able to continue under a special treaty between locals on both sides of the border between Australia and Papua New Guinea. Recognising the importance of protecting the traditional way of life and livelihood of Australians who are Torres Strait Islanders and all Papua New Guineans who live in the coastal areas of Papua New Guinea. The Torres Strait Treaty allows visa-free movement between communities in this region. It was established in 1978 after PNG gained independence from Australia so close traditional ties could be maintained. The arrangement also allows people from both sides to fish in each other's traditional waters. But when the COVID-19 pandemic struck in 2020, all cross-border travel was temporarily suspended. After more than two years, the treaty has now been restored, but with some hefty restrictions. We're supposed to travel freely without any restrictions, but the way we're seeing it, they're coming up with more laws and regulations. Councillor Sully is the treaty chairman who represents villages on the PNG side of the border. He says new conditions imposed by his Torres Strait counterparts are unfair and not in the spirit of the original agreement. We're supposed to travel freely without any restrictions, but the way we're seeing it, they're coming up with more laws and regulations. While previous arrangements allowed for extended visits between the regions, Papua New Guineans can now only travel to the islands on designated days. They're only allowed to stay for a few hours and they're not allowed to buy food from the local supermarkets. It's unfair because the treaty agreement, like we all know that, The argument is that, you know, we are brothers and sisters are. It's a worry for Councillor Sully's daughter, Shirley Kebe. She says without access to shops in the Torres Strait, villagers have to travel hours by boat to Daru, the capital of Western Province. Like in Daru, it's like more expensive exercise for us. The fuel cost and all this to go and come. So... The Torres Strait, like it was so close for us. Huh? We had easy access to go and do shopping and trade. Huh? The ABC has also been told that Papua New Guineans are being discouraged from seeking medical treatment in the Torres Strait, as they've done in the past. The new travel conditions were introduced when the treaty resumed in mid-October. 
Councillor Saleh says they don't benefit Papua New Guineans. There's a lot of restrictions coming from the Torres Strait Island leaders, which the spirit of the treaty does not allow. But Torres Strait Deputy Mayor Gatano Louis Jr. believes the changes actually uphold the original intent of the treaty. Between 1985 until recently, what we've done is we've moved away from the the actual spirit of the treaty, the integrity of the treaty, and really doing things that we shouldn't be doing. For instance, that um, under under the, the treaty, there should be only visits for barter and trade, which is this exchange of goods. There's no cash involved. Prior to COVID-19, the Torres Strait received 20,000 visits from Papua New Guineans under the treaty each year. Councillor Louis says that has a drain on local resources. We as a council have to look after our own infrastructure and the drain on our water storage, all of that essential infrastructures on our side, that the impact of visitors coming across, it does have an, have an effect on our overall performance too, as well as a council. And he says Papua New Guineans have also imposed their own restrictions. What they've said to us is that anybody that wants to travel to Daru from here on in, they would have to travel by passport. Now, we didn't put that arrangements in place. Torres Strait and Papua New Guinean leaders will meet later this month to discuss the new guidelines. But Councillor Saleh says the current conditions are so restrictive, the treaty may as well be abandoned. Now it's not working well because of layer and layer of laws created by Torres Strait and leaders on top of the treaty. If the treaty does fall apart, it will signify the end of a millennia-long relationship. Marion Farr reporting. Kava is relatively new to Solomon Islands, but already it's stamping its mark as a favoured cash crop. And exporters are eyeing the biggest market in the region, Australia. But as Chris and Rita Amanu-Leong reports, meeting the market requirements means providing a high-quality product. Wale Tabata owns Rafali Holdings Limited and is the only Solomon Islander out of 430 suppliers in the Pacific exporting kava to Australia in a pilot project. I'm mindful of the fact that if it's not pitched right when you put it out there, then it has the potential of destroying our market prices. And so uh, for me specifically, I have to trade carefully. Drinking kava isn't part of Solomon Islands culture, but it's becoming popular and now an export business. As chair of the new kava industry working group, his focus is on the communities and stakeholders. We can have a much more coordinated approach in terms of seeking assistance from the donor partners and, and development partners who are seeking to help us by ensuring that, that the developments that we do, uh, like I said, is far-reaching and reaches out to our, our communities and, and the stakeholders who are involved in this industry. Switching from fruit and vegetables in 2016 to kava was a key decision for Shirley Money. She's now the country's only female kava exporter and is also eyeing entry into the Australian market. I see that there will be a big growth because, like, if 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 we send cover to the into Australian market, then we need uh, we need to like it's it's an it's an growth for our business because if we meet the requirements, then I think Solomon Island will not meet the demand for Australia to to export into Australia, and it will help us too in the future that uh, we will gonna have more 
profits and the prices in Australia is really good. Australia is the key destination for kava exporters in the Pacific and the pilot scheme is open to exporters. Alison Pernell is Australia's economic councillor in Solomon Islands. She says there's a big potential market beyond the growing Pacific footprint. 2020 census estimated over 200,000 Pacific Islanders. For Carver, we would be relying on that diaspora of Pacific Islanders who drink and use Carver as part of their, their lives and as part of their culture. But perhaps as Carver becomes more more accessible, more known. That was Australia's Economic Councillor in Solomon Islands, Alison Purnell, ending that report from ABC reporter Kristen Rita Amanu Leong. And that's it from Pacific Review. I'm Evan Wasuka. Thank you for listening, and do join us again at the same time next week for more news and views from around the Pacific. <laughs>